Welcome to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor Hutchison, joined as always by Andy Collins. Andy, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah. Oh, doing pretty good. It's been a, uh, we're recording this on a Friday, so it's been a long work week. Um, but, you know, happy to be here talking programming languages and software development with you. So what you've been thinking about? I have a question for you. Have right. you ever, have you ever met a software developer, a programmer, if, as it were, who didn't have opinions? Um, uh, we're not, we're not going to count the, the software, the, the, the code butler that I'm building in my garage, right? Um, like a human. I haven't, you, I haven't started timing you yet to see how long it takes you to talk about code butlers, but I feel like it's going to be hard for you to go quicker than that in the future. <laughs> I know I led with it right out of the gate. Um, yeah, maybe that'll be like a callback reference for our podcast, but so yeah, I'd say it's very rare. Um, the thing about opinions is they can be completely incorrect, of course. And yeah, I have often met people that I think have completely incorrect opinions, uh, but are also professional software developers. So yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a pretty good guarantee. All of them have opinions. So you're a developer, right? A little bit, a little bit less so these days. Um, but yeah, I think I count. I think you do too. And I think, you know, that implies, I think there's some sort of logical apparatus whose name I don't recall. That means that you uh, must have opinions. I, ha- I have my own fair share of, of incorrect opinions. Yes. I don't think you need to be humble. I think what we really need to hear is your your opinions. You know, I've been thinking okay. about, as we do a lot, uh, you and I, thinking about uh, programming languages and specifically uh, C-sharp. So at, at my job, I actually just started a new course, teaching a new course this week, teaching a, a, a C, the C-sharp portion of the course. So I got, got that in my head right now, thinking about it. And I've been thinking about how just really complex it is as a language, you know, mm-hmm. and which I think is sort of the inevitable drift of any language. You, you know, you keep adding more features. We have this this sort of idea in software, in not just software development, but software in general that says, if you don't continue to add to it, then the software dies, right? It's like the shark has to keep swimming or whatever. Um, and right. so, and which is not to say that the features that have been added to C-sharp recently are not good, that there's nothing good there, but there's just, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and it's inevitable that it's going to get bigger and bigger and I don't know what happens at the MA, you know, you take a look at something like C++ and you're like, well, you can go a long ways, right? It, <laughs> uh, before you yeah. tip over. But in, in that, um, let's just, just looking at it, 21, 20, 21 years history of C sharp has been around. Um, there's bound to be a few things in that language that, that you like, and there's bound to be a few things that you don't like. And because we are trying to bring the controversy, as you know. Right. That's, this is what the whole podcast is about, trying to get to that controversy, that manufactured controversy. We're trying, we're, we're going to like, we're going to, I want to, to push you a little bit and get the, get the controversial opinions out there. I'm looking for us as a podcast to get that sort of visceral hate mail. 
But personally, I don't think I could handle it. So I want you to get the hate mail. Get out in front of it. Yeah. I, I get you. I understand. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, both of us have been uh, working with C Sharp for, for quite a while. And I would say personally, I love it. It's my favorite language, um, kind of general purpose programming language. Uh, although I do have to say I, I have been using a lot more PowerShell recently and I have a lot of love for PowerShell. That is a different episode. We'll cover that. Well, let's, let's, let's pause there real quick. Cause we keep saying that one day <laughs> we're going to talk about PowerShell and I'm not, I'm not really convinced that we will. I'm just, I'm just planting seeds, hoping that like you take the bait eventually. And we just have this like epic debate, um, you know, a, a, a Oxford style debate on why PowerShell is a good idea. Well, you're right. You're correct to uh, imply that I have opinions about PowerShell. That is true. <laughs> well, before we, we kind of dive into, you know, what are my bad opinions about what C sharp needs or what should be different? Uh, I am kind of curious. You raised an issue there, like that C sharp is complex and I agree with you. It is, but do you think it started out that way? Do you think it's grown into that? And if it has, like, at what point is kind of the inflection point for you about when C-sharp became, like, a complex language? You know, I've thought about that. And I used to think that surely it started out simple and then it got more complex. And and as I said earlier, certainly they've added more features over the years. Um, two, two decades is a long time. There's definitely been a lot of features added. But looking back... Um, to the original version of C-sharp or the early days of C-sharp at least, I think it's always been complex. And I think mm -hmm. the nature of it, you know, I w I'm inclined to say the nature of it as a general purpose language makes it complex, but I don't think that's exactly hitting, hitting what I want to say. I think C-sharp has always been a multi-paradigm language or a multi-purpose language. So maybe not just general purpose, but it's like specifically there are features that are in C-sharp that specifically target, say, desktop Windows development. Mm -hmm. So events and multicast delegates come to mind, right? These, this is a feature mm -hmm. of the language that doesn't have to exist. Um, you know, you probably want some kind of function pointer style thing in a language, but you don't have to have the, the way that they did it. It's a little bit complex there. Um, and then another area that off the right off the bat that Microsoft was trying to support was systems programming in C Sharp. And so you have this whole world of basically, you know, C++ or C-like development that you can do where you're doing direct unmanaged memory access. You have pointers, you're manually allocating stuff, you're manually removing stuff. And you're making system calls directly from C Sharp. Yeah, and I don't really know the, the history of the unmanaged part, but um, maybe you do. Do you, do you know if it was added in because they thought like, well, we're not going to be taken seriously unless you're going to be able to address memory directly or, or kind of get down, get outside of the managed memory? Um, or was there like a real need for that? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't a, I've never been a Java developer, um, which I think was like kind of their sort of competition uh, in, in building this. So um, do you know why that they included from the get-go the unmanaged? Well, I don't know why, but that's not going to stop me from telling you. Um, <laughs> Go for it. So I have my, these are my thoughts about why. And I think that they were really, 
I don't know that it was a, you know, we talk a lot about C Sharp and .NET generally being a competitor to Java, and there's definitely pressure there. But I think Microsoft was really thinking about their existing developers. So the, the developers who were currently writing code for Windows. Because you remember in the early days of C Sharp, we weren't really thinking about web development. It was basically Windows development. Um, and Microsoft right. sort of famously missed the boat on the web, and that's why we had IE 4 and 5 for, and 6 for so long. Um, that's a different, that's another episode as well. Um, but they, they were targeting, I think, two groups of people, visual basic programmers and C++ programmers. And so th- those were their current market of developers that, that were working on Windows. And so if you're going to try to get a C++ programmer to jump ship, you're going to have to do like raw memory, memory manipulation. You're going to have to be able to get low level and make direct system calls, that sort of thing. And if you're going to target a Visual Basic programmer, you're going to have to have some nice event-based features, just some nice GUI-based features, some things that, that mean that in my editor, I can double-click the button and it shows my event handler and I can do stuff with it. So maybe from the get-go, they, they were trying to please two disparate crowds uh, that, that uh, had different competing interests about what a programming language should be able to do. Well, I think it was them trying to merge those, right? Because basically, and I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the VB world before I looked at C Sharp, but I was in there for a little while. And, you know, there was a cert- at a certain point, you had to stop writing Visual Basic. Like, you couldn't get the work done you wanted to do. And you had to transition over to C++. And so the, one of the nice things about .NET, and maybe you were doing even VB.NET at the time, but the nice thing about .NET generally is that you can live, you have access to all of those worlds. So I think yeah. that was it. Now, as far as the language design, I think they were really looking at Java, and they were they were seeing a deficiency that Java had in that sort of system world, right? They did system development yeah. world, so you're not writing a lot of system calls. And this is the thing that I was thinking about, because um, when I was thinking about how complex C Sharp is, how I was comparing it to other languages that don't feel as complex. And I know we spent a lot of time on this, this show talking about you know, Python and JavaScript and that sort of thing. But those are two that came to mind at first. Um, I was thinking about Elixir and Ruby and a couple of other languages. And it occurred to me that these languages are, they're, they're simpler. They're getting more complex all the time, certainly. Um, but they're simpler than C Sharp because they, they, uh, the whole class of, of uh, system programming, they just throw away. And they don't exactly throw yeah. it away, but basically Python doesn't do that. You know, if you want to, if you want to interact with the raw metal, you have to drop down to C and write a Py, you know, a C extension for Python. And so in a way, like Python itself is not even the language. Python is not all of Python. Do you, you also have to include all of C. Yeah, that's interesting. They just kind of draw a line and say, no, we're not going to support that at, th- at this level. Uh, but we do provide a way to do that. It's just not going to be Python anymore. And so in a, in a very real sense, if you want to be like a like like a full, like, a, 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 I, don't, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Like you want, to, you want to be able to do the full range of development in Python, now you suddenly have to learn C, right? Or if you want to be a Node developer and you really want to do everything that's possible in Node, now you have to learn C as well. Uh, and so maybe it's not fair to draw the line and say that the 
the Python language is simpler and so that's somehow better than C sharp because C sharp you don't have to learn C. You know, you don't have there's it's all there in one in one package. Um, now that those pack in practice, I think there's like compartments of people who use features of the language that don't use all the features. I don't know who I mean. Maybe people at Microsoft are using the full range of features. Maybe if you're writing the C sharp compiler in C sharp, you're using everything. I don't know. Um, but most people I think are doing web development in C sharp, or they've never touched a pointer. Like you don't even, probably tons of people have been doing C sharp for a long time. They don't even know like there's unsafe stuff that you can even do. Yeah, I'd say that's that's for sure true. Um, most people would never need to do it, um, or if they if their application needs to do it, they're probably calling into a library that does it for them. Well, and and I, I should say that when it, in terms of JavaScript and Python and Elixir and Ruby and all these other languages. In practice, you can do a lot of system-level development programming because somebody else has already written that wrapper that calls into C. So you actually don't have to write the C, because some, but somebody else has already written the C. Yeah, I think that that is kind of a distinction that we have nowadays, maybe maybe for the last like 20 years or so, that um, there are these application programmers who don't need to know about, you know, they're... Not only are they sitting on top of this high level language like C sharp, but they're sitting at like the highest level within C sharp where they're not even worrying about like all the different features and they don't need to. They can get away and do their job and have a great career and have fun without ever knowing about unmanaged. It's really kind of an interesting world to be in. And I think it it makes my initial thought about sort of balking at the complexity of C sharp. It makes me rethink that and think, well, you know, in some ways it it's really complex, but in some ways it's actually multiple languages. I think that's fair. Um, so all the, all the things that I have to say, all the critiques of C sharp that I have really don't have anything to do with the complexity of the language, maybe a little bit. Um, they're more around like, Oh, I wish it could, it would have this capability. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm asking for more complexity. So I'm going to go through a couple of ideas that I have and just, you know, just tell them to you, see what you think. Um, I should kind of put a caveat on this that I haven't really done the work to see how hard these things would be if they're like additions to the language or whatever, you know, I'm going to offer a critique that I have really no idea how hard it is or why it's not in the language. I know a couple of these have been discussed, um, as issues for C sharp, uh, on GitHub. Um, and I'm not sure why they're not being implemented or if they plan to be or whatever. So anyway, um, the first one is actually not even a, a language thing. It's just maybe this is like the lowest hanging fruit, but the solution file. So it's very common to have a solution file when you're dealing with C sharp, uh, when you're working with multiple projects. Um, and I just think the format, the complexity of the solution file is just too much. It is, it is not easy to hand edit. Um, I wouldn't recommend hand editing it. And if there's just a lot of stuff in there that I just wish it would get the same treatment that uh, the project file got when they went to .NET Core. They just made that so much easier to work with. Um, so I hope that the solution file gets gets a little attention in a future release. So I think you know you don't really even need a solution file for a .NET project with or a .NET application with multiple projects, right? You just need it in Visual Studio. Uh, 
Yeah, you don't really, so you could just add... It does make it a little bit nicer to work with, um, and if you want to do like your restores without being in a specific uh, project. Um, so yeah, I guess it's not strictly necessary, but a lot... I mean, you know, there's quite a lot of C-sharp developers who are still on Windows who haven't made the transition over to like you know, not working with Visual Studio. Oh, that's certainly true. I just wonder if maybe the solution is not a Visual Studio solution and get rid of the solution file entirely. I keep saying the word solution a lot. Um, <laughs> so maybe maybe the, maybe the fix for your problem could be uh, just change that hard rule that Visual Studio has about having solutions. There you go. Yeah, that's a that's a probably pretty good good idea. <laughs> fixed it. You you fixed it. You fixed it. Great. Let's see what you do All with right. some other ones. Um, this is this next one that I have is a feature that I'm pulling from TypeScript. I think a few other languages do this though. But you know when you're you're you've got a constructor for your class and you're passing in some parameters. And you want to capture whatever you pass in as a as a private field or maybe a meth um um, a property and uh, you have to, you know, create that backing field and assign it and you have to have a different name. Maybe it's like an underscore, the same name, um, that kind of old style. Uh, but in TypeScript, you can just apply the modifier like public or private right in the constructor and you don't need to do any of that work. It'll just put it in the appropriate backing field for you. So, so this um, is different than records than the way records behave, right? I think yeah, I think it's different than the way records behave. So records that will give you uh, sort of init, well, I guess immutable properties by default in the record constructor. So, but they're not; they're all right. it's all public. Yeah, exactly. So um, I can't wait to adopt records. I think that's going to solve a lot of issues that I have. Uh, so maybe this concern will kind of go away if I am able to just move a lot of my stuff to records and not really work with classes anymore. But I just feel like that's something I'm always doing. I'm like always uh, grabbing the parameter from the constructor and then assigning it to another variable. It's like, why can't the compiler just do this for me? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on that. I think that a few years ago, one of the proposals for a C-sharp language change that ended up getting dropped, it was something like... Um, I want to say default constructor, but that's clearly not right. It was like an, like a top level constructor, you know, yeah. basically it looked kind of like the that record. Vague, that sounds familiar. So you would have like the yeah. class name and then open parenthesis, and then you could put the properties in there for the, whatever that constructor was called. Um, mm -hmm. I really hope that there are plenty of people yelling at their, at their, uh, <laughs> podcast, podcast player right now. Uh, but yeah, whatever that was yeah. called. And there were reasons again, that I don't recall that, 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 that feature didn't make it. I'm not sure if it was going to be as powerful as what you're saying, like the public and private. That's, that's pretty nice. I think we should, we should uh, have a little meta note here, which is to date, we have resolved in this podcast to not look things up as we talk. So this is all just the knowledge that we have going into it. Um, and I do hope there are people screaming into their, their earbuds right now telling us how wrong we are. Uh, are you a big fan of generics? Do you use a lot of generic programming? How do you feel in general about generics? I'm a fan of generics. Yeah, I like um, 
I, it's been a very long time since I did any C++ template metaprogramming, so I don't really understand that yeah. template world. I've forgotten how weird that is. So C-sharp generics, though, mm-hmm. seem like most, you know, to give me what I need. I know they're constantly adding new constraints that that somehow there seems to be a whole new thing that maybe when they wrote Rosalind, they, they got the power to add all kinds of different sort of constraints to generics. Um, mm-hmm. But as in general, the feature I like being able to to build generic classes. Yeah. I'm a big fan of generics too. I, I like, they, they solve a lot of problems for me. Um, I mean, obviously I guess you don't strictly need them, uh, but I think they can make the code easier to read. Um, I think famously didn't the go pro- programming language not have generics. I don't, they might still not have generics. Um, yeah, I don't think so. I don't they, think they have generics. So, um, there are a couple of issues, maybe three issues I can think of that like plague me regularly about generics though. And I wonder if I'm the only one that has these issues. Uh, maybe it's just the way I program. So I really want the ability to have a generic attribute Right. So I love attributes. I apply them to classes to to help me with things or maybe even parameters. Um, But you can't have an attribute that also is a generic. And that just seems strange to me. I don't understand that that limitation that that seems like we could get around that. Well, what do you want to do with this generic attribute? So. All right. The. The use case that I have that comes to mind is I'm in ASP.NET Core and I've registered some generic with uh, the dependency injection system, right? I don't know. It's going to do so. It's going to manage my transactions to the database or something like that. Um, and that, that service that I've registered is a generic. Uh, but it's also an attribute. And I would like to apply that to my controller class. So when it's on action executing, it starts a transaction. When it's done, it commits the transaction, something like that. Um, but because it took a, a generic, it, uh, it can't be an attribute uh, that I apply to the controller. Um, so I don't know. That's just like a, maybe a specific use case. It's my use case, and I really wish they would change it. Um, but they are not responding to any of my letters. So we'll see if that happens. Are you sending them... Uh, um, care of anybody in particular <laughs> uh yeah i mean you know of course like bill gates and, and yeah Palmer. i think that's right you're, uh, you're up to date you're fine yeah. yeah okay good glad to hear that you know i i i'm gonna say i i i know this is about your opinions but i can't help it i'm a developer too and i have my own opinions i i don't like attributes like oh, okay. I like the what I thought attribute. I remember long ago when I first learned C sharp, but what I thought attributes were, were were going to be kind of easy ways to do sort of AOT style programming, right? Um, and I wanted to, I wanted attributes to be what decorators are in other languages, basically, like some sort of compile like maybe metaprogramming thing is really what I'm talking about, right? Some kind of compile time yeah. metaprogramming that I wouldn't have to do all kinds of weird maneuvers to make happen. 
Um, there, it's just, but it really is just this metadata, right, that you're sticking on there. And if you are going right. to do something, you have to do a lot of like legwork in order to do the metaprogramming stuff or something akin to that that you'd really like. That, that's what I wish. I wish attributes were super flexible in that way. I mean, maybe I'm looking for macros or something like I don't know. Um, yeah, I wonder in the future. Um, this is something I really haven't explored. I, I'm with you. Like, I do like attributes. I think that they're not the thing that I want because I do love metaprogramming and I wish we had more compile time flexibility. I wonder if there is some, again, not knowing anything about this, like some combination of attributes and, and source generators uh, that will fill that need. Uh, it's just I haven't really investigated the source generators because uh, I think that's a fairly new feature. So... Maybe, maybe that'll maybe, happen. but I, I feel like it. You know, the way attributes work is pretty locked in. I mean, if you're gonna have, you know, I don't know. I would really like to be able to just write some kind of wrapper and say, all right, I'm going to. I mean, logging, I guess, is a common example. I'm just going to put this logging uh, attribute on my class, and then that will give me the ability to enter to intercept calls to all the methods. And, you know, people write logging frameworks that do that, but there's a heck of a lot of stuff you got to do to make that happen. It's not just built into the language. So, yeah. anyway. No, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's something we definitely want uh, in our languages, or at least I do, is like, I want a feature that's not going to give me more work, <laughs> you know? So, but maybe, hopefully, they can do something with that in the future. Um all right, continuing on the, the thought train of generics. So I often add constraints to the generic to make sure that I can only pass in a certain type. Um, and right now you can say, oh, this has to have an empty constructor, right? So you say where T is um, a new, right? A new open close parens uh, for an empty constructor. I would really appreciate the ability to add a non-empty constructor constraint to say, hey, whatever type, this has to have a constructor that, that takes these parameters in this order so I can new up something without using, like, reflection. All right, let me give you an alternative solution that doesn't work, right. but it's another it's a different idea. So what if you could put constructors, define constructors in interfaces? Hmm. Okay. Um... And then you just say where it where it uh, constraint is the interface, and therefore it has to have right. that, um, and therefore you'd be able to new it up. Well, you'd still it would still wouldn't know how to do new. It yeah yeah. I mean, if that works, it works. I mean, I know it doesn't work, but uh, if that's something that they enabled, that would be nice. I don't know. I, without thinking about it too deeply, that seems like a thing that would potentially. Um, lead to some more flexibility. Now, I guess you might run into uh, a problem where you suddenly have multiple inheritance accidentally with constructors. So maybe that's why they don't do it. But I, I, well, I like the ability. So constraints are actually a pretty ugly. Um, they just they make the method signature or whatever look pretty pretty gnarly. Um, so I like the idea of hiding it behind an interface. That way it's not like all this one just giant line or whatever um, for your method. But um, yeah, I, I could go with that. 
hopefully uh, the listener who knows about the shapes proposal is going to tell us that, that this is totally going to happen in the future. (laughs) I, I looked this one up a while ago and there were some legitimate, um, you know, some, some people with a lot of deep knowledge of, of .NET that said, this is a, this is not as straightforward as you think it is. This is hard. (laughs) Um, and I, I completely trust that. So I'm sure all of these are actually hard. And again, I want to say I really appreciate the people that build C Sharp and .NET and in no way am I complaining. Uh, I You're love watering down the controversy, Taylor. Taylor. Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm sorry. You don't mean a word <laughs> of that. <laughs> Make sure. <laughs> uh, well, uh, talking about the shapes proposal, I mean, this is sort of related. Um, I really love working with TypeScript and the structural typing system. And I wish we could sort of borrow some of those ideas and features um, because, you know, we're stuck in this nominal typing system where I have to explicitly declare that my class inherits from this interface. And I just wish that we could could go with that more. Uh, I'm not really familiar with the shapes proposal, but I would love to be able to do more structural typing uh, instead of, of explicit. Yeah, I just got it. My, my gut on that one is like, you need a whole other language to do that. You know? Yeah. No, I, I think that it's, it's, uh, widely, it would be really hard and, and cause so many headaches. I imagine that it, it's probably not worth it. Um, so structural so. typing would be like, if you like any two ta- any two classes that maybe both had a name property would be the same, right? They would be, you'd be able to use either one of those instances at any place where a name property was needed. That might not be the best explanation, but you don't, they don't even have to have a relationship between each other, right? They don't have an inheritance relationship or an interface relationship or is a, or whatever kind of relationship. It's just, as long as the property names and types look right, you can use it. So it's kind of like duct typing for a compiled language. Well, it's it's different from duct typing, I think, because you would still do compile time checking, whereas I think duct typing implies a runtime check. Um, might be wrong. It's about a duct typing compiler. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I still want compile time type safety. I just think that compiler's so smart. Surely you can figure out that this is a set, you know, I can pass a thing that looks like that other thing. Um, and all I'm going to call is one property or one method on it. Just let me do it. Um, but still check that I'm type safe. You know, maybe it's too much to ask. Maybe, maybe we do need another language and I am kind of interested in, in that in the future. Like, so we have VB, um, C sharp, F sharp, you know, maybe I wonder if there could be a sort of spinoff from C sharp where they take like the top half, the, the, the most, the last 10 years of C sharp kind of spin it off into a new language, leave behind some of the cruft, like, uh, the dynamic, the DLR stuff, you know, no, we're not going to bring that. Um, and, and have maybe some of these newer features. So the, the old language or C sharp can remain and lots of people can be happy and continue to use that for a long time. But we have this newer sort of branch of C sharp that has these features. I mean, if you think about it, there are like, like what, 22 more letters in the alphabet. 
<laughs> we really have a lot of time to evolve this. I mean, you know, I don't know what the year 3000 is going to look like, but hopefully they're beyond, uh, you know, K sharp or, <laughs> or K plus plus. I touched on it a little bit, but are you, I know you like Python, but have you ever been a fan of dynamic in, uh, in .NET? I remember when it when it came out when Microsoft was like in heavy competition. Suddenly, suddenly the world had changed, and now everybody's building Ruby on Rails apps, right? <laughs> and that was when the DLR was created. Like, well, apparently developers want this dynamic nature, this sort of the ability to kind of write um, fluent uh, domain specific languages, right? In their in their primary language of choice in Ruby in that case, and so we need to get on this dynamic train. So they did this. They created the DLR. They created Iron Ruby and Iron Python, and I don't know if they did, but around that same time, Iron JavaScript. There were a couple other Iron languages. Um, Iron Lisp rings a bell, and I think that's a thing. Um, and it was just a, it was. I thought it was going to be really cool at the time. And a couple years later, Microsoft's like, "Well, you know, we're going to release these things into the community." Um, <laughs> that's how you know. <laughs> like. Well, at least it used to be that way. I think now they mean it means something different to them. Well, they don't actually release things in the community now. They have a whole .NET foundation. They're actually they're still with them when they when they make it open source now. In those days, it was just like, if you want it, we're not going to do anything with it. It's fine. Um, but I, you know, it seemed like an interesting idea. But it was a, it was a super brief window of time that it seemed like an interesting idea. So I, I I think it was it was a gamble that didn't pay off. So I'm with you on that. Because it wasn't popular. Nobody was, I mean, if if you were looking through a code base today, if you start, if you got a new job or you, or new, maybe, you know, some vendor showed up and dropped some code in your, in your lap and you had to now support it and you saw a bunch of dynamic stuff in there, I mean, what would you do? <laughs> right. You would think that they were, well, me, I would have, my, my thought would be they really didn't, they were maybe lazy or they just didn't want to take the time to type it. They were just trying to get some work done as quick as possible. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if there's any advanced tooling nowadays that can help you with that stuff. I don't know what Visual Studio does with Dynamic, really. Um, I gotta tell you, I never considered but, like approaching Dynamic in the TypeScript fashion of sort of gradual typing. I don't know if that's really a thing that would work. Is it? So could, could you yeah. like? use dynamic all over the place. And then when you finally figured out what you wanted your API to look like, then go create a class. Yeah, maybe oh, there's an opportunity for a code. There butler. you go. Code Butler. Uh, come behind you and say, Hey, I noticed that you've got a, a bit of a pattern starting here. Would you like to extract this to a class? Um, yeah, always not a big fan. Uh, I personally never reach for it. I also, speaking of like, speaking of uh programmers that have opinions like one opinion i've never heard is someone say like oh i really appreciate the ability to just attach a property like in javascript uh i love javascript because i can just like do dot whatever and assign it i mean yes people do that all the time but that's not something i've ever heard someone say they love um of course they lean on it and they use it but I don't think that's what I think they misread the moment uh, when they created the DLR. 
Well, I'm a big fan of this proposal, as I understand it, for what uh, the C-sharp team is calling extension everything. So the ability to create extension properties or or more more complex extension methods. Um, I don't know if it'd be more complex, but extension properties at least on classes that you don't own. So the ability, because one of the nice things that, that JavaScript gives you when you can just attach a property is you can attach a method or a property to a class that you don't own or to an object that you don't own. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be handy sometimes. And I, I would, uh, I'm kind of interested in that from like, if you can do it with extension method or extension type things, uh, maybe, maybe that would be add some flexibility and the ability to essentially uh, do what monkey patching of, of, um, of classes or types you don't own, but in a safe way. Mm. Here's a term I haven't heard in a while. That used to be incredibly popular. Uh, to get stuff done on the web. I mean, you can you can just say I'm old. That's fine. <laughs> I was I was trying yeah, to dance around it. What um, else is on your list? There's a there's a couple of things that fall more into like, you know, this is not C sharp's fault. This is not .NET, um, but just the way developers use it. And maybe this is like based on advice uh, from Microsoft. I'm not I'm not really sure, but. I'm not a big fan of the one class per file, although I, I stay strict with it. So like, I don't like it, but I do it. Um, that is definitely something I appreciate about F sharp is like, you can put a lot of stuff, a lot of things inside one file and that's okay. One, because it's so terse that it would, wouldn't make sense necessarily to do one per file, but two, that the, the culture says it's okay. And I wish we had more of that in C sharp. Well, I think it's a, there's a little bit of another, another reason why people do that in F sharp and put multiple things in the same file. And I, I, I don't know the history of this or why this is a thing, but the order of files in an F sharp project matter. Mm. So F sharp doesn't just get compiled as far as like your source, your source code from the top to the bottom of a module or a file but like literally the files in order that you specify them in your project go top down. So you can't reference something at the top, one of the upper files that you declare, you create in the lower file, for example. But so I, I think so, it ends up being like easier to put everything in the same module because you don't have to deal with this fact that you have to order the files and you don't get all that right. Um, but I do. But I think it's sense. the terseness and all that is definitely makes it easier. Makes it, you know, like you don't need a file for a function. I mean, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and then kind of a, along with the, that same theme, I'm not a big fan of naming your variables based on their type. So I think this was pretty common in VB um, days to say like. Uh, you know, to to make the type or an abbreviation of the type part of the variable name. I don't like that for sure. Um, but, you know, if it's a string, why am I attaching str or s or something to the name of the variable? But also, like how we, as a matter of practice, will say i, you know, interface. Uh, I'm kind of not a fan of that either. I wish we didn't have to do that. And that's not so much a thing in TypeScript. 
Uh, I think they originally started out that way, but then they're like, well, interfaces in TypeScript don't really have much to do with interfaces in C Sharp, so we don't really need to stick with the same convention, so let's just do our own thing. And so, yeah, in TypeScript, I never use I in the beginning of an interface. Uh, so I'd kind of like to do away with that in C Sharp as well. The the whole type thing, though, it's commonly called Hungarian notation, right, where you put the... STR, I, or INT, or INT, or something. I really, you know, I sort of regret that we never look things up on this show. Because <laughs> there is a, there's an article I read a long time ago that was the guy who who created this notion of, of Hungarian notation. And it was the story of how it went all wrong. Like, he never intended you to actually just put the data type there. He was using it as some kind of like um, more of like the 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 business domain type of what it, of what this thing was. You know, he had a whole other, much more sensible idea about what what this is. And then somewhere along the way, it got twisted, and then it got put into the official recommendations for VB or something to to do that. And it's just it's it's really an unfortunate story. Um, but again, we don't look stuff up, so let's just pretend that that's real. Maybe one day we'll get uh, show. Yeah, that, that we sounds... can get show notes at some point. You know, maybe. Yeah, maybe, if we get around to it. Um, I don't think that that was ever. You know, there was a time when that was a good idea. Hungarian notation. I just think, um, for the most part, you know, IntelliSense uh, is so good. Our IDEs are so good. We don't need. You know, that, that information about its type or whatever um, is just kind of latent around you as you work. And so we don't need to have that information. You know, if you're a programmer that's working in Nano, maybe that is helpful. So Nano? I guess just... Come on. Or whatever. Pico. You know, whatever. Uh, I'm sure, Pico. <laughs> whatever they're using yeah. these days. So when it comes to putting an I prefix in front of interfaces, that's where just where you're wrong. Yeah, oh. that's pretty straightforward. Um, uh, I I find I find it maybe it, it was a little bit jarring long ago when I first started doing it, but I quickly said this is really nice. I really like this just tiny little bit of extra information about what I'm dealing with here. You know, and and I don't. And there was there. I've seen people try to be cute with it. You know. Um, but most of the time it's just like, there's this, I, we, we don't exactly read it. You don't really say it. You don't think about it. It's just this additional bit of metadata about what this, what kind of thing this is, that this is an interface and I don't find it disruptive at all. I think it's really nice. And tell you that the thing that, that, that I, why maybe this seems like a, a reasonable option to me is I hardly do much class inheritance at all anymore if i'm inheriting anything or if i'm implementing anything it's an interface um i just don't do a lot of abstract base classes and have like long uh, inheritance chains so usually whatever comes after the colon is an interface anyway and i just know it so i don't know I, maybe that's just me the way i program but i i've gotten away from uh, you know, I'm much more of the composition over inheritance style these days. I like that too. But if I see just a stray type in a, in some code somewhere, 
I mean, I guess if you're writing your code in in the best op- object oriented style, it shouldn't matter if it's an interface or a class. I, I'm just comforted to know what it is. It makes me happy. So, and <laughs> and you're even right that I could hover my mouse over it and it would tell me that too with IntelliSense. But um, yeah, I don't know. I like it. It's just the letter I. It's fine. <laughs> just one character. Um. I think I'd like to to end on this one, which is that the warnings and errors could be a little bit better, right? So when you're doing your build and you get, uh, you know, 70 errors or whatever, you know, that's kind of the normal amount that I get. Um, I wish they, they looked a little bit different. I wish that their output, now I'm talking about like console output, um, I really like the way Rust does it. They give you a nice kind of colorful, in a way, visual representation. They give you the the code right in the console um, and not just the whole line, like the specific part that is wrong. And I think that um, a lot of languages or frameworks are starting to go down this route as sort of a developer quality of life improvement is just much better error messages or warnings, and I'd like to see C Sharp kind of adopt that. So I think I think you're Not right. Not that they're bad. Uh, I mean, I, and I look at that um, from the perspective of my students, and it's it's something to watch their their face just kind of go blank, and their eyes glaze over when this big wall of text shows up, and and they don't read it, they don't know what it's. It's just intimidating. They don't know what's going on there, and they just they just sort of slowly back away, you know. Um, I honestly, I think what would really help with those would just be a blank line in between each one. <laughs> yeah, a little more space. Just yeah, I mean, honestly, they could go down that route. Just improving the layout. If I had to guess, there is probably just dozens of tools that are built on the the output of that stuff being in a certain format. Um, and so, like, if they change it, they break those things. So maybe there could be like a switch or something in your project file. If you're building that particular project, it, it has like a different type of output maybe. Yeah, you're know. probably right about the, some tools that are, you know, assuming the output. I mean, you know, probably even, you know, things like OmniSharp or even in Visual Studio it might be part, it'll be parsing that output and, and putting red squigglies or whatever because of that. So, but yeah, I mean, I think it could totally, you could totally have a flag that says, you know, human readable or something. Mm, yeah, I'm I like with that. you. <laughs> for for humans, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, from the perspective of your students, uh, I can definitely see being quite intimidated by like stack traces. I think we, you and I, have probably like trained our eyes to narrow in on the the meaningful parts of those things pretty quickly. Um, and at least at least stack traces I, sort of try to do a little bit of indentation. They put, you know, the at word mm-hmm. in front of, I mean, that's slightly better though. It can be really verbose and huge, particularly in like an ASP.net application or something. Um, it's better than just the, the long list of warnings and error messages, which really is just a big wall without any structure yeah. to it. Cause all those messages are one line long, you know, I think, uh, from my experience, I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm going to just say 75% of the time, if you will read the error message, it will point you directly to the answer. 
right? But I think what happens is people see all of that text and they're just like, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know what to do with this, so I'm not even going to attempt to read it. It just kind of scares them away. Um, if they just made it more, almost enjoyable, you know, or, or at least like less frightening, that I think that would just be a huge quality of life improvement. Well, and I think I think you're right that the rest people, you know, I've heard them talk about it on podcasts and read some stuff that they are really intentional about the error messages. I mean, the error messages are the way that the compiler communicates with the user, right? That's the feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, it, the feedback is either no message, everything's fine, or here's all the stuff you need to know, right? And so from a usability, user experience perspective, that's absolutely important to do that. That's the, us- the user of your, of your application should you know not have not be afraid to read the output, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or should want to read it. Um, are you the type of developer that if you have one warning or or one or two warnings, like you're going to ignore those, or are you going to take take all of the warnings out? Um, are you gonna are you gonna silence them, or are you actually going to go fix the code? So this is interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna claim that this is interesting. So if I'm writing, say, a React application, so JavaScript app, and I have warnings in there, a lot of times I'm just like, that's fine. That's not a big deal. Because <laughs> you don't take the words <laughs> Apparently not. I just don't. It's just, that's just for shopping. <laughs> um, I'm more, I, I think, I mean, I have left warnings in for sure. Um, Mm-hmm. But I'm a little bit more likely to go in a .NET app and, and at least look at them and, you know, maybe consciously suppress them if, if you make mm-hmm. that call. Um, but I don't know. I, I think part of that stems from I feel like my experience is that every single application, every, like every web page you go to, like warnings are spitting out all over the place because there's just tons of them all the time. And they just don't have that many in a, in a .NET app. I mean, a lot of the things that might be warnings in a JavaScript app are actually compiler errors, and I have no choice but to deal with those, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. The kind of warnings maybe that I've seen a lot are, you know, if you have different tools in Visual Studio that 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 tell you to write your, you haven't written your uh, API, your XML documentation or whatever, you know, stuff yeah. like that. I guess I've ignored those kind of things before, probably to my to my detriment. Right. Well, the fun ones are when you turn on uh, the new nullable feature in C Sharp 8 uh, and you just get just hundreds of warnings, you know, like, oh, you haven't initialized this. We don't know what this is. Um, that's a fun one. And then it, 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 I'm kind of being serious, actually. It is a little fun to, like, go through and be like, oh, well, I didn't realize that I hadn't, you know, that this could possibly be a null error here um so those are the fun type of warnings to go through so are you are you going through existing code bases and cleaning it up for to make it knowable reference safe uh for a few not all the ones that i work on but yeah i've done it for a couple of applications and some libraries and i i wanted to just do one to see how hard it was, but also like, does it make a meaningful difference? Does it make the code more complex? Because now I'm forcing myself to say, um, okay, I, I, I do believe that this could possibly be null. 
So I'm going to initialize it to null and declare it as nullable. Um, I like it, actually. Um, I think anything I start in the future, I'll start that way as, as being um, nullable reference types from the get -go. So this sort of brings up a whole other class of opinions that are less commonly talked about opinions, the positive ones. Like the, the opinions that are good, like the things that we actually like about C-sharp or, or whatever we're talking about. I think I could go for a couple hours on that Yeah. One. Well, maybe, yeah. We can, uh, maybe we can plan to do a have a conversation like that next time. I, I think not only should we plan, we should commit to it. We guarantee you, listener, Larry, uh, that this whatever episode this is, the next one will be something positive about C-sharp. So that was a really strong is statement. That, is that too bold? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like with a statement that's that bold, I'm really likely to try to derail us next time. <laughs> I like that. I think that's good. I Yeah, we could also, I mean, if we're trying to generate rage at this podcast, there's no better way to do it than like to make a promise and then not deliver. Oh, I so. mean, I feel like we could, we got to mix it up. You got to deliver sometimes. You have to deliver in an unsatisfying way. There's lots of different ways we could do yeah. this. Right? Yeah. We could just true. talk for, for an hour about semicolons. I would probably struggle because I'm pro semicolon. Yeah. But uh, I, be I believe that if there's anyone that could do it, it's you and I. Uh, we could riff on semicolons for, for quite a while. That's good. You only really need one line in all your source files. <laughs> true. Yeah, that's the minification approach. That's right. Okay, well, uh, this has been fun. I've enjoyed uh, lightly critiquing C-sharp. Just, you're just um, slamming it and being merciless. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's at least what we'll write in the show yep, description. Yeah, we got to get him in. The, <laughs> merciless critique of C-sharp. <laughs> um, that might be the show title, so... All right, uh, I guess I'll just remind our listeners, if you've made it this far, please follow us on Ref Count Podcasts on Twitter. And if you want to write us anything, uh, we might read it on air. Uh, it's refcountpodcast at gmail.com is our email address. Um, you know, send us a question or, or whatever. Just uh, compliments, critiques of ourselves. We'll, we'll take it Any all. rage so. that you want to direct at Taylor, totally welcome. <laughs> yes, it's the same mailbox though, so Andy will will get to see it. Uh, so maybe that's what you want. So yeah, I'm more of a I want to be like a voyeur. I just want to watch people yell at you. Uh, is that what this whole thing is about? Well, yeah. it's I, I mean that's a lot it, of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, I guess uh, I'll talk to All you right, next time. Taylor. See ya. <laughs>